You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hey, friends, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It's Ben. It's Matt. And it's Ben. Ben. <laughs> That never quite works because of the delay. All right, we'll have to uh, we'll have to sort that out later. Uh, again, I'm trying to do there's the like radio a pause thing. between mine. Yeah, there is. Time. Yeah, yeah. From from our perspective, there's like this pause uh, where it's like, what what's next? Oh, it bends here. All right. Well, maybe we need. Maybe I need to say it at the exact same time Matt's saying it. Let's yeah, try it yeah, again. Yeah. Let's try it again. Let's yeah. do it. All right, let's okay. try try yeah, that. All right. We, All right, we got this. Hey, it's gravity. <laughs> it's the gravity leadership podcast. It's been. It's been. It's been. Yes. Yep. Perfect. The, nailed it. All right. I think <laughs> nailed, nailed it, it again. Yep. Awesome. Uh, all right. In all seriousness, friends, um, we we have uh, something to, new today on the podcast that we've never done before, um, which is that da, da, we are da, da. going to re-release, uh, which is that Matt's dog is barking, uh, which maybe has happened before, but uh, you may have never heard uh, her bark during a podcast. But um, we're doing something new, uh, which is that we are re-releasing some of our favorite episodes from uh, the past. Um, our podcast has been around now for, this is the 95th episode. High five. High five. Hardman? 
High five. Virtual, <laughs> Virtual high five. Virtual high five. Uh, this has been around uh, for a little while now, and um, I trust that a lot of you listeners uh, just kind of started with the latest episode you heard of and haven't gone back through the archives. That would take an incredible amount of commitment. Who's got time for that? Yeah, nobody has time for that. Nope. So, um, so we thought, though, some of these episodes uh, were just... They kind of blew us away. Gold, Jerry. As we interview other people, not necessarily the episodes where we were talking. You we don't, blew ourselves you away. You don't know the episode I've picked yet. <laughs> but, um, but so we picked some of these episodes where we interviewed people that, um, and you know how this podcast is. We kind of no. like to, it's not, it's not super formal. We like, to, we like to have generative conversations where we discover and learn something as we talk on the podcast. And so there's a lot of these podcasts that were really impactful for us. Uh, to record and because um, they're real conversations. So uh, we want to, leading into the new year here, the last three episodes of 2019, we want to re-release some of our favorites. Uh, and we <laughs> we actually kind of fought about these, like who who gets to pick the, well, you know, which episode is their favorite. Cause, uh, I've lost twice, by the way. Yeah, you have. <laughs> you, <you're> in, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so this first one, um, just know that these are... Uh, Favorites of all of us, uh, actually. So this first one is with uh, an interview with Brad Jerzak. Um, Matt, why did you like this one? Uh, well, this isn't my favorite episode, Ben. Yeah, well, it's not the one you... I'm just saying, like, hey, why, why did can't I like we this all... Episode? Why can't all three of us pick all three episodes? We're going to have Brad back on the podcast. I like this episode because uh, Brad tells the story of how he discovered uh, God is like Jesus. Yes. And he, uh, you know, he's a brilliant... Uh, scholar mm-hmm. and uh, pastor, yeah. but um, the the story he tells about uh, meeting a God who challenged his theology in prayer, mm-hmm. and meeting that God through the worst of the worst people that he was yeah. ministering to, yeah. just blows me away. Yeah, um, we don't often tell those stories. I mean, we don't. You know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of in our tribe that we all come from. That's kind of taboo, right? Like I was praying and and God revealed himself to me and now I have to read scripture differently. Like that, (laughs) you know, it works the other way around. I read scripture, I figured out who God is and now I know how to pray. Um, And so I think just the challenge he brings there and the beauty that comes out of that. And then too, it's just like people that you just are in their presence and you're like, I want to be like you. Mm -hmm. I want to be like you when I I grow up. Yeah. And Brad's one of those people for me. He is, yeah. He is. Mm. Yeah, I, that, that for me too is, is one of my favorite aspects of this and, and challenging uh, because it still does mess with my, you know, hermeneutics a little bit. Like, oh, can you have an experience of God and let that challenge the way you read scripture? Or does any new discovery of God have to be, oh, uh, I was reading scripture and I saw something I'd never seen before? Well, to be fair, right? to be fair, Brad, you know, obviously went back to the scriptures. Obviously, right? Yeah, so it wasn't he, like he wanted it was, to test it, right? Yeah. It's not. It's not just like, oh, I had this experience one time, but, but um, I think, yeah, I think uh, part of the part of the reason I really like this is that it does illustrate in a concrete story how these things are related. That we're not <clears throat> when we're interpreting scripture, we are actually always interpreting through our experience, even if we don't think we are. And so we have new experiences, which means we have to re-examine the scriptures, and then we re-examine the scriptures, which means it opens us up to new experiences. Uh, and around and around we go. So, anyway, any, Hardman, anything else you want to say about this episode? Yeah, this is one I, of your favorites I think too. Brad's, yeah, I loved it. Uh, I think Brad's able to talk about really, really deep things mm-hmm. in really practical ways. And yeah. so I love the way his practical experiences influenced his theology and mm. uh, 
there's a lived theology component of this that I think is really important. It's not just we're sitting in ivory towers thinking about things and writing about things. It's, it's, no, this is, this is lived out stuff. uh, And I think that matters for all of us. Yep. Yep. Uh, I I appreciate the simplicity. I'm always struck by the simplicity of the idea that God is just like Jesus. (laughs) Um, but then, like, once you actually start to take it seriously and think about the implications, it starts to become really challenging to a lot of the theology we carry around. Um, and Brad uh, talks uh, very deftly about that yeah. in this episode. So uh, enjoy it, friends. We're still um, uh, booking workshops, obviously, for 2020. We'll yeah. put a link in the show notes. It's getting close to Christmas, though, so probably most people aren't really thinking about that. One thing. Workshops might... make a great stocking stuffer. <laughs> yeah. You know what else they makes do. a great stocking stuffer <laughs> is our membership community. <laughs> Just stuff that right in your stocking. Uh, but if you are interested in supporting our work and becoming part of our community in a deeper way, uh, we would encourage you to check it out. It's patreon.com slash gravity leadership. If you want to check out our workshops, go to gravityleadership.com slash workshops. Uh, and I think that's all we got to say, guys, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Good advent, and here's Brad Jerzak. Friends, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. And uh, we are glad to be here with you today. I'm here with my friend and ministry partner. Mate. Ministry mate. <laughs> ministry mate. Uh, Matt Tebby. Hi. It really and is, like co-pastoring really is kind of like a... When you there's decide a lot to, of parallels to you know, marriage, yeah. partnership. Yeah. You know, on the org chart, we were sort of parallel with each other. Right. And that confuses a lot of people. It does. Who makes the final decision, they ask? Mm-hmm. Well, I say... That understands power incorrectly. Yes, that's right? not how we think about it. Which is one of the reasons why we're having our friend Brad. Yes, Brad Jerzak is with us uh, all the way from uh, Canada. Alberts, um, Albertston? Yeah, where are you from, Brad? Abbotsford. 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 Thanks that's for right. having me, by the way. This is going to be a treat for me, and I'm really glad yes. that you invited me. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. Um, we wanted to chat uh, today. You can give, give, give a little introduction, a little story, uh, if readers, are, uh, sorry, listeners are not um, familiar with you. Um, you wrote a book uh, that we want to talk a little bit about today called A More Christ-Like God, uh, and want to yeah. talk a little bit about... Um, your ministry experiences that led you into kind of fully embracing this theological shift from God as pure will into God as infinite love, as it says in the book. Um, but we want to talk about how that was rooted not in your, um, you know, study of the scriptures in an ivory tower somewhere, but in your kind of everyday lived experience. But um, before we get to that, just Give give our listeners a little uh, picture of who you are. Kind of what what do you get up to in a typical day, and and what's your life all about? Yeah, uh, currently I have a couple things going in terms of vocation. I'm the editor in chief of a magazine called Christianity Without the Religion, CWR magazine. Oh, I like and, that. And um, that's available online free at ptm.org. And the story behind that is that. Many years ago, you had a cult called the World Chi- Worldwide Church of God cult with the Plain Truth magazine. Yeah. Huh. Their founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, died in the mid-'80s. The, the editor of the Plain Truth at the time began to have his eyes opened, and by the 
90s, he had gone to resign because he realized they were false teachers, but the president said, uh, I think you're right. And so they began a process by which they actually shifted the whole group to Nicene Christianity. Um, really? And, that is um, fascinating. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the anti-cult groups, like, let's say, um, the Bible Answer Man and so on, they, they had gone after them. Well, they actually helped them through this transition. Wow. Anyway, by uh, 2000, the cult, the Worldwide Church of God, had become a Christian evangelical denomination called uh, Grace Communion, uh, Grace Communion International, and then and the magazine went its separate way and started a started a ministry called Plain Truth Ministries, and then changed the name of the magazine uh -huh. to Christianity Without the Religion, oh. and then eventually they found me, and I was a consultant and a writer, and now I'm the editor in chief. So it's <laughs> this bizarre thing about a group that I studied in cult class in 1982 and now i'm the editor-in-chief of this so brad you could just tell people you're That's an ex-cult leader i i i wasn't with them at the time but i'm uh i'm working with Kurt. an ex-cult that's yeah, for yeah, sure yeah. that's yeah. crazy Quite amazing that is amazing um, and then i still have a toe in the academic world i i am entering the role as uh, as the associate dean of the master of ministries program at saint stephen's university in canada hmm. and it's um you can find that at ssu.ca. And I teach New Testament there. I teach some theology, teach some spirituality, teach early church fathers and so on. So that's kind of my vocational stuff, the editing and the teaching. I do a ton of itinerant stuff around a more Christ-like God, that, mm -hmm. that book. Um, really, I'm on a perpetual book tour <laughs> promoting the, the gospel, I think. I'm trying to evangelize <laughs> the Western mind, really. Um, hmm. And then ministry side, I'm, I'm very involved in 12-step recovery, and I'm also the monastery preacher at All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery in Dudney, B.C. Um, so there's some monks up there who've mentored me in Eastern Orthodoxy, and I'm one of their preachers now. And hmm. uh, so on a Sunday, I, you may see me in a cassock chanting and so on. Wow. So I've got kind of an eclectic life, really. Yeah, sounds like a lot, a lot of different things going on. Um, mm -hmm. You weren't born Eastern Orthodox, though. No, no. Um, the, the, the quick journey. version of that. Everything's everything has to have a quick version because I'm so old now. <laughs> quick version is I grew up conservative Baptist for 20 years, where I learned to love prayer, evangelism, and the Bible. Then I got married and went to seminary. And when I was finished that, um, my wife's church, which was Mennonite, invited me on, and that's where I became a ordained Mennonite pastor. I did uh, youth, young adults, and outreach stuff for 10 years with them. Then we planted a church that I would call um, small C, charismatic. Very, It was kind of a vineyard feel. We weren't in the vineyard, but, but a vineyard feel, uh, although our real emphasis was on people with disabilities, people with addictions, children, and the poor. So sort of the least of these across the board, that was our focus. So I led that for 10 years. My wife led it for five while she was leading it, I went off and got my PhD in theology. Hmm. And by the time I graduated, I, um, I I was starting to work with the magazine and with a school in England that I've just finished up at, Westminster Theological Center. I was there for six years, hmm. and that was okay. magnificent. So hmm. that's uh, so. Oh, and then that journey led me finally into the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, hmm. For some of the reasons you see in the book, it's okay. it's like my classic assumptions about the meaning of 
the cross, the content of the gospel, I, I felt like, no, I need to go deeper. And so it felt like migrating to the, the trunk of the tree. Uh, you know, <laughs> Christianity is a many, a many branched wonder, yes. <laughs> but um, you know, the ancient historic faith, the, the, the four, third and fourth century fathers, they really appealed to me. And I found some Gandalf like monks who, who have taught <laughs> me on that for now 15 years. Oh, wow. So, wow. So your connection with those monks is kind of as uh, a big part of that story. It sounds like they, they, yeah, a huge part of that story. Okay. And all of this, that you're exactly right. In the intro, you talked about like, does our, does our practice emerge from our theology mm. or vice versa? And my, my uh, observation is that when you start with a, with a ideology or a mm. prescriptive theology, and then you go out to apply it, Hmm. Um, that can become very ugly and toxic and, and abusive. But historically, the very best theology always emerged from an observation and analysis of what God was doing, what the Holy Spirit was doing in a worshiping church. And then you would, and then you would respond to that and say, oh, we see what God is doing here. But that's, that is the New Testament. Yes, that's right. how the New Testament was formed. The whole yes. thing it was not written in a in the corner of a seminary office somewhere. Right. It's like, right. how do we respond to Jesus yeah. as we watch him? How do we respond in our churches mm-hmm. as we live that stuff? So you, you like I, uh, and Ben, kind of came up into sort of this um, Western Enlightenment Christianity that put a premium on the objective truth. The thing exists outside of you, you, you know, you don't, you don't sort of get to decide what it is. You consent or just submit to what it is. But what you're describing is the way that theology has always been done in the church has been this participative, experiential, uh, very subjective engagement. Like, how do you—I know that's part of your story and part of your journey into worshiping a more Christ-like God, but I think that sells, mm-hmm. that's, that sets off, like, siren alarms for a lot of people, Brad. Yeah. Like if you if you decide to do theology on the ground and it becomes more subjective and experiential, then all the controls, all the you know all the ways that we put borders around doctrine, like the, you just throw those to the wind. And I know you don't believe that, but how do how do you maybe in your story how do you navigate that and how do you help people come to come to understand that better? That's really that's really good. So first of all, I would want to challenge. Along with you, I think. Yeah. Um, even the language of objective, subjective. Of course, I believe there's a truth that's beyond us. But there's, and I want to go more ancient then, because what you're critiquing, yes. and I would as well, is this enlightenment idea that there's this there's this objective truth that I can that I can know objectively, as if I have no filters, no biases, no culture, no family history, no background wounds. Like, <laughs> it, it, um, There's a kind of postmodernism, and Stan Fish is a good example of this, where he'd say, of course there's objective truth. It's just that when you go to know it, you're involved. Your ears are involved. Your eyes are involved. Your life. So the question is, can you know objective truth objectively? No, that's silliness. So... I, I want to use some different words. I would say that, no, we don't want to just make stuff up. Right. Um, I believe that, 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 there, that there's a God who lives and moves independently of, of, of my understanding. But our entire lives are 
to be an existential encounter with this God. So instead mm -hmm. of subjective, I'm using, um, I'm, I'm using th this idea that, that if there is a God, he can only be known existentially, <laughs> yeah. and experientially. In fact, what do we think the Bible is? It's not Mork for Mork that came out of heaven in an egg one day. It's the history of people's subjective experiences. Yes. <laughs> oh, existential experiences, their yeah. encounters with God, and that the Bible, the, the Bible records these in a way that then we emulate. Mm -hmm. So we're not reading it as, as it's not just text on a paper that you're meant to, you know, consume uh, um, apart from an interpretive bias. We just all have them. I think what I'm doing is saying, I know I have one. I just I have a bad feeling enlightenment evangelicals don't know they yes they are subjective they're pretending right. they're not that's a delusion yes that's what makes it especially dangerous <laughs> that kind of subjectivity makes it especially dangerous when you don't think that you think you're just seeing the thing and you don't realize oh I've got some glasses on right yeah and I think there are, there some glasses actually distort and other glasses clarify but right. you don't get away from having glasses yeah you know, that's we all need them not, not reality yeah. right? so I, I just get from talking to you before and even now as you shared that brief uh, part of your story that this this 10 to 15 years with this community made up of the least of these mm. did did a number on your theology um, is that true yeah, and even in even with the Mennonites, um, when I was with the Mennonites, we started we started um, getting heavily into inner healing work, mm -hmm. and this is where rubbing shoulders with vineyard folks who had some familiarity with that was helpful too. But so basically, um, I became more charismatic and contemplative in that I was open to experiences of direct encounter, and my primary doorway into that was watching how Jesus treated sexually broken people, especially like victims of, of sexual assault. That's a big thing. Hmm. And so we would do healing of memories work where we would see how he treated these people who were really, really broken. And it was always like Isaiah 42 verse two. It's a, a smoldering wick. He will not, not snuff out a bruise. We read, he will not break. It was this supernatural tenderness. Then when we wanted to see even more healing, we thought it'd be better to work with perpetrators. So you prevent 30 rapes. Mm. <laughs> and, and no one was having success with this, really. And, and we're looking at it and saying, well, why don't we pray with them the same way? And then we did, and we saw it was the same God and the same approach. And he oh, was just so kind. And it was all about Romans 2. The kindness of God leads to repentance. And it's, it's gazing on this Christ is what leads you from glory to glory into the image of Christ. And mm. you just begin to see that um, God is love. <laughs> and, and, there, and, and then with the Orthodox guys, then they would come along and they would confirm this theologically after the fact. And this is what you do. You're, yeah. So they would say this theologically, there is no retribution in God. And we'd say, none? What do you mean? <laughs> Not even a little? And, and then we'd, we, but then we'd look at our history with these broken people and we'd go, no, he never once came to us in retribution. In fact, I wish he had sometimes. Mm, right. Right? I know of cases of gang rape where it's like, go, if, if God is wrathy, he should wrath them. Mm. And he's not wrathing them. So 
what does this mean, right? Wow. So then someone will bring out their Bible again, and I, I'm like, don't don't poke at particular stories in the Bible. Look at the big picture. Where does it go? It goes to the crucified one, drawing up all of that suffering, pain, and perpetration into his own body on the cross, and then swallowing in love and recycling it as forgiveness. So, yeah, all of that time with broken people, with disabled people, with with twelve step people, and all of that, it it does a number on your theology. Hopefully, I think a good number that that then becomes a lens with which you read scripture. So it sounds like you didn't go looking mm. for. Uh, you didn't go looking to deconstruct the God of Wrath by working with the least of these, but in working with the least of these, a lot of your assumptions about retribution and wrath as a solution to what's wrong with the world were deconstructed almost against your presuppositions and will as these people encountered the risen Christ in prayer. Yeah, especially against my 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 fleshy um, uh, desires. Like so, yeah, I. I didn't want him to be kind. (laughs) I wanted him to pour out his wrath. I'm like, I have Mm -hmm. a list of people for you. I want you to be the hit man. I want you to be my hit man, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you're, you're right. It was, it's not like I'm this peacenik who's (laughs) looking for a peaceful God. It was, I I was a violent SOB Mm. being converted like Paul was, you know, Paul, Paul was converted from, uh, um, his personal participation in violence and the the assumption that his violence was an act of faithfulness. Yes. <laughs> and so I think people, even, even this murderous Pharisee, was de- driven deeply by, an, by, by, by a desire for faithfulness. I think, I think a lot of people are, but, but then you can see then how their own projections mm-hmm. about how they want the world to be. I want to control this world, so I'm going to project onto God, this God of control, and to be faithful is to be an agent of his control. And, and you're like, oh, my goodness. So it's such a pseudo-faithfulness in that sense. But it is a desire for faithfulness, and, and, and it's one that um, God is willing to transform it. In my case, it was, it was like a long, painful mm. transition to where now I'm, I'm, I'm deeply committed to that, and I still need to be because I feel the violence in my heart. Yeah, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'll just point out, you mentioned Paul and Damascus. I mean, this is Peter and Cornelius' house. Like, he's going to Cornelius' house to, like, let's put this Gentile stuff away. <laughs> like, and he's mm. not looking— to relearn, uh, you know, 800 years of Jewish thought about Gentiles. Mm. Uh, but it happens. And so I think you're, what you're describing is, it's, here's the irony, is that you didn't get to it through an inductive Bible study. Right. But what you're describing is a biblical journey. Yeah. And then what, I'm, what I experienced then was not a deconstruction of the Bible. See, this is the problem. People think, but, but I'm faithful to the Bible. I believe in the Bible. No, you believe in your hermeneutic. That is your interpretive, your interpretive um, um, framework. And so mm-hmm. here's the idea. People will think then if you, okay, you've got a conflict between the Christ-like God and the inspiration of Scripture. And I'm like, and that you're going to have to throw one or the other under right. the bus. I'm like, not true at all. Yes. The more Christ-like God is deconstructing a, a fragile hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in fact, a, I would say a toxic interpretive yes. system that was burst with modernism, which was burst with the Reformation. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so then if people can get their heads around that, it's not quite so threatening. It's like, yes. no, Brad's right. not saying get rid of your Bible or ignore your Bible. He's saying read it more carefully with a more ancient and mm -hmm. proven interpretive grid. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 And I think that's, that's what people, I think that kind of message is what a lot of people need to hear again and again is because when they reach these points where they see the conflict between God is love, God is like Jesus. One, one of our axioms that we train uh, people in, in our coaching is to embrace, you know, the, the truth that God is like Jesus and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Yeah. Uh, which is a quote, I think attributed to an Anglican bishop. A few Anglicans. Yeah, yeah Archbishop of Canterbury. I forget yeah. which one. Yes. Yeah. Ramsey. Heard, Michael Ramsey. Ramsey, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, like that feels threatening, again, like you said, to their hermeneutic, but they don't realize it's their hermeneutic. It feels like God. It feels like it's threatening <laughs> yeah. to their faith. Yeah. And um, the options that come up for people are, I could abandon the faith and just like live mercifully or, you know, like embrace, embrace this and assume it's not Christianity. Um, or, you know, double down on the wrathful God, double down on God is pure will. Um, yep. But I, I love this third way of saying, actually, um, there is a, a way of reading the scriptures um, that's actually very old, very ancient. You look at the early yep. church, they read the scriptures this way. They saw God as love. Um, and it opens up, I think it just opens up so much for people. So I'm hoping people hear, are hearing this. Yeah, and it's not just God as love in a sentimental way, but it, what yeah. it is to say is that God has revealed God as love on the cross, and so mm -hmm. and, and that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I, you know, some of my progressive friends who are on a similar journey, their progression is just leading them away from Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's, I have a better way. If you mm. want to be faithful, double down on your Christology, go higher, like much higher. Mm. So <laughs> practically speaking, that means, um, that means, G well, here's a concept. Jesus is the word of God. <laughs> okay. The, yeah. the Bible is, a uh, is, are, are the sacred inspired records of our journey with God, but it's not the word of God in the end, at the end of the day. Jesus is the word of God. He's our final authority for faith and practice, in spite of what most Protestant um, uh, doctrinal statements say. Yep. The scriptures are our final authority for faith and practice. No, they're not. And in fact, the scriptures say they're not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the scriptures Don't. say yeah. Yeah. that Jesus is the word of God that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth and that the church is the foundation of the truth. And, so you're, the, and you're like, what? Yeah. Well, the ch church one, tough one, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so what are we saying here about the Bible? Well, the, the Bible emerges like our theology, the Bible emerges from our encounters with the living God and, and that Jesus is that living God. I like what Brian Zond says about it. Have you been, had him on yet? Yeah, he's been on a couple oh, times a couple already. Times. Yeah, that yeah. when the Bible says that, like, that Jesus is the word of God, think of it this way. Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Yes. And then what Archbishop Lazar, my mentor, says is, is that, and that every scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. Hmm. Every scripture that claims to be a revelation of God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. So it's not, I feel good, so I like this scripture. It's like, no, Jesus is the, the, is the new lens. 
Yes. And sure, I'll have tainted Jesus lenses, but whatever. We've got to do what the best we can. What you're describing is a mm. deep intuition of people across denominational lines, Brad. So what we interface with pastors and leaders all over the world, mostly North America, mm-hmm. and we hear people, Methodists, Baptists, Anglicans, uh, Presbyterians, uh, we don't interface with a lot of Eastern Orthodox uh, it's to our detriment. But there's <laughs> there's lots of people who are who intuit what you're saying, but they don't feel permission yeah. to do it because their their frames and constructs are built in this the thing you keep referencing, like this yeah. other old thing. So they keep trying to squeeze new wine into old wineskins. Yeah. And, and it keeps bursting for them. Yeah. I feel like f- there, for some people, they're going to have a progressive impulse and others will have a conservative impulse. But if you have a conservative impulse, get more conservative. In other words, move, don't go from old to ancient. Mm. So the, the Reformation's old, but it's only modernist old. It's only 500 years old. And it has some good gifts that I keep with me in my bag as I've moved on from that. But but uh, so for some want to throw that away and come up with something novel and fresh. Some want to go ancient and find something deeply rooted. And I'm saying those are quite the same, actually. <laughs> so some of people's instincts, they're like, I kind of feel guilty for these intuitions. Yeah. And I'm wanting to say, no, no, you're tracking with the ancient church now. Yes. It's really cool. You have permission I'll, I'll give you a really obvious example um, that I quote in A More Christ-Like God, where there's this intuition that we shouldn't be taking wrath, anger, and violence from God as if they're in a literal way. Mm-hmm. That God isn't literally wrathful. That God isn't literally angry. That God doesn't literally do violence to anyone. That's an intuition, I think, that rises up from healthy spirituality. Well, I want to say that's exactly what the ancient church taught. So St. John Cassian, who really had a lot of impact on, on the Church of England, Anglicans, yep. um, he didn't get to the UK, but Celtic Christianity is founded in his theology. And he said this, hmm. that, to, to, that to say that God is literally angry, wrathful, or violent is, is, uh, is idolatry, and it's a monstrous blasphemy. Okay, this is from the 300s. Wow. This is by, you know, and over and over, these guys, they, they talk like this. In fact, Cassian also says this. If when someone is talking about God as if he's angry, wrathful, and violent, that, that's a projection of their own, their own fears. Hmm. And that's the lens they've put on. And maybe it's, you know, that's not saying it all, but you, I, I'm just saying that in... Some of these mo- these postmodern intuitions are also are also pre-modern. Yeah, and uh, that yeah. gives me permission. Yeah, it's really helpful, and I I find the same thing for myself. It gives me uh, both permission, but then also like theological resources to know this yes. isn't this isn't a new. It, it, it the permission is there because it's not a new thing. Like the church yep. has always had these intuitions, and and has said we need to learn how to read our Bible. You know. Uh, through the lens of Jesus Christ as the Word of God, the final revelation of, you know, what God has to say uh, as the yeah. Word, and um, but then also like a way of doing it, you know, yeah. like uh, and you know some of them are to our modern uh, sensibilities. Uh, some of those strategies like don't make sense to us, uh, but that's part right. of why I appreciate like for example the work of Greg Boyd 
in yep. Crucifixion of the Warrior God, where he's trying to he's trying to give us another lens to say here's here's a way of reading these stories as inspired um, without making the assumption that God is literally doing violence to someone. Right? That's kind of that's yeah, kind of that's the, it. That's the perception that's there. It. Yeah. Um, David Bentley Hart has this New Testament translation out now. He's an Eastern Orthodox philosopher, and uh, I really enjoy it because it's so weird, and it slows me down, and it makes me think about the text. And one of the things he says even about, like, Paul is he'll, he'll read these ancient stories allegorically. Well, we're, we're modernists hate that, but Hart goes further, and he says he believes that that, that Paul even – probably believes they were composed allegorically hmm. instead of literal history half the time. Hmm. So in the ancient church, um, 200 AD, you've got Origen, who was the greatest and you know, most prolific church father of his time. Um, in 200, he's saying things like, well, the first reading has to be literal, the second moral, and the third spiritual. So he's doing layers of readings. But on the literal reading, he says... Um, so to read the Bible literally means, first of all, you have to distinguish which, which books are fiction and which are nonfiction. <laughs> and so he's even saying reading literally means identifying the fictional aspects. Right, right. Not That's just taking them at face value as this, right. these things you could have video recorded. It's like, sure. Uh, so yeah. we, we need to learn from people like that. And you can, anybody now can go online and read uh, Origins Philokalia. Hmm. And it means collection, and it's it's how they did Bible interpretation in 200 AD before the New Testament was even done. And of course, yeah. for Origin, you read literally first because it's the least helpful lens to use, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you get to the more you get like that. You got to get that out of the way. You got to do it, but then you move on to the better readings. Yeah. <laughs> like yep. In his yeah, and by morally doesn't mean moralistic. What he means is that. You know, in the pastoral epistles, it says when you pick up the Bible, there's a point to picking it up, and it's to becoming more Christ-like. Yeah, that's the moral reading. Mm. If you can't figure out how a story will help you become more Christ-like, then then don't preach it because you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then, and then the spiritual reading, which is like often what is seen as his allegories, the spiritual reading isn't just allegory. Um, this what it means is. How does this text point to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. And if you can't figure that out, you can't preach from it. Mm. And, and so he's very insistent. If, you, if you're not preaching through the lens of Jesus as the final authority, then the whole Bible is the Old Testament. Yeah. So I'm curious what you learned. You, so you just used the word gospel. I'm curious what you yep. learned on the ground with uh, rape, like rape survivors, rape perpetrators. Yep. Um, they... Uh, the, I'm guessing the gospel you preach to them isn't um, uh, God created you, Adam and Eve screwed it up, now God hates your sin, but if you pray this prayer with me, then you can spend an eternity with God in heaven. If you don't pray a prayer with me, then Jesus won't be able to stop God from uh, giving you what you deserve. Uh, so what What is then, Brad, this kingdom, like what is the gospel and how, how does it live like right like a ground level, not not at a theologically really pristine level, but like on the ground, looking up in a tree, inviting somebody to lunch. Like, what is that gospel, and how do we know if we're preaching the gospel or not? Mm. Oh, that's such a great question. It even clarifies for me what we were doing back in the day when we first discovered, you know, the 
inner healing ministry. And I would say, in a way, we were discovering the gospel as you're, you know, mm. what you're, what you're asking about. And that is, you start with the person's um, experience of the human condition, deep pain, brokenness, alienation, isolation, trauma, all of that stuff. Because when in Luke four, when Jesus launches his ministry, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor recovery of sight to the blind, cleansing to the leper. So he's starting with their need. Mm. So someone would come to our office and they, you know, drag a friend in who'd been molested. And, um, and they would tell me where, and so we would start there. The gospel to them that turned out to be, um, as I would call them uh, to, I would invite them into an encounter with Jesus. And technically that's repentance. Repent means not self-loathing or anything like that. Um, it's turning to the kindness of God to meet your deepest needs and heal your deepest wounds. That's what repent means. Turning to the kindness of God. So they come in and they've had this trauma and we're like, well, um, I think what would help you is if we is if we would bring this to Jesus for healing to turn to Him with your deepest needs and 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 wounds and and if they said okay I'm willing to do that they've already done the repenting then we would invite Him into the very uh, we'd say okay let's go to the very roots of this the very roots of your life your pain your history and let's meet Him there and they would. And it, it's sort of an inter internal narrative therapy where he comes into he comes into our hearts. Well, he doesn't really. What would often happen? This blew my this screwed up my theology. I thought you have to become a Christian so you can get him in your heart. <laughs> but we were working with people who weren't Christians, and they would go to their heart, and he was waiting there. Oh. He's already there. And even like Augustine would say this back in the day, he said, well, you know, when I went running out into the world, God didn't leave me. I left me. Yeah. So I'm coming back to my own heart. And what do you know? He was there the whole time. Mm. And then, and then, and then they would behold the Lord. I mean, they would, they would begin to see how he was, he was there for them. Cause the idea with them wasn't that, Oh, God is wrathful. It was that God was absent. Yes. That yeah. he's an absentee landlord or the, the father who just sat by watching them be abused, but then they would see him enter, co-suffer their pain with them. Okay, mm -hmm. so now we've got, this is the cross. This is that he has co-suffered the human condition even unto death. So what you're saying then is the cross isn't, the gospel there isn't, Jesus suffered the punishment you deserved, but rather Jesus suffered with you the punishment you endured. Yes, Yes. Uh, well, let's say for the victims, but let, um, let's say for the perpetrator, yeah. I'll give you an example of that. One of the perpetrators, I bring him to the, he came and he told me what he had done and I was horrified and I was angry at him. But I, so in prayer, I dragged him to the cross <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I said, can you see, can you see the Lord there? And he said, yeah, I see him. Usually he's standing alive in front of the cross, but here he's on the cross. And um, I said, tell him what you did. So he confesses everything he did to Jesus. And then, and then I said, what does he say to you? And I'm right, ready for the, the ham, hammer down. <laughs> and Jesus says to the guy, I, I forgive you. So he's, he endured what we've endured. And he's also endured all that which we've per perpetrated. Mm. And in that moment, he says to the guy, I forgive you. 
And the guy says, um, that was too easy. <laughs> and Jesus looks at him and says, no, it wasn't. And he's like, oh, and then the tears. <laughs> oh, <came>. my gosh. Brad. <laughs> So, That's so the, the, the meaning of the cross, one of the meanings of the cross is, yeah, I like how you worded it. It's that he's endured all we've endured and he's endured all we've perpetrated. And, 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 and he's able to do this for, for all history, for all people. And in fact has, but then the question is, but what about my pain? He's like, he even enters your pain and he, and, and through co-suffering love, he heals it. Oh, it's such a beautiful gospel. And I think, I think it is a, it is a gorgeous and there's there's this sense that you know people who've suffered abuse or perpetrated like abuse like things you can go to prison for or things that you know you would commit suicide yeah. about like just really hard stuff that isn't that isn't of a different cloth of suffering and pain and brokenness than the rest of humanity suffers right it's on it's in the same spectrum of like mm. just brokenness and hurt so what's beautiful about that gospel is, it is. That it's not just for the it's not just for the completely distraught and broken, but it's for the middle management white collar suburban dad of two, who who's doesn't hasn't been in touch with his heart for years and yeah. is simply going through the motions in his marriage yeah. right and but he's got Netflix at night and a six pack on the weekends and so he's going to be okay, you know what I mean? Okay, now you're just describing my life. But- <laughs> Hey, let's let's, Jesus um, can heal let's, you let's go to the cross, Brad. You and me, let's go to the cross. What's Jesus saying yeah. to you? As, 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 my wife and I were making the bed this morning, and uh, she, I want to point out something. Um, when when you were, we just did a three week tour of New Zealand, and she said all of the examples you gave were about sexual sin or sexual assault or sexual, and I, I you know, you want to be more relatable than that, and I I agree. <laughs> um, and then I was thinking, why do I do that? Well, first of all, it was the front end of my experience. Right. Um, but also I want to say that if Jesus can do that for the sex addict, he can do it for the Netflix addict. Yeah. If he can do, if he can heal the, the, the victim of gang rape, then maybe he can also touch lonely people. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not wanting to say this is only for the extremes. I'm saying that the extreme is evidence that there's nothing his yes. blood can't wash. Yes. There's nothing his kindness can't touch. And, mm-hmm. and, and I really feel like, yeah, you're, you're right. Maybe like most of the people in our pews, pastors need to think about this, that a lot of the, you've got people who just get through the week so they can hit the weekend and have that catch one little breath. What they're not going to need is like moralizing. Yeah. But what they could use is an invitation <laughs> to just look in Jesus' face and remember how loved they are. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that gospel is, um, and I know this is part of part of this more beautiful gospel and a more Christ-like God is this sense that the atonement is about our healing, not just sort of our guilt. It's not like a yeah. theoretical sort of atoning of like, okay, well now you're not going to get punished for that thing you did. It's actually, it's actually, no, there's something, you know, we're punished. This is another Brian Zahn thing. We're punished by our sins yeah. more than we are punished for our sins. And so the gospel comes to us uh, to heal us of what we've yeah. endured because of our sins. That's actually a more ancient atonement theory. That's a medicinal or ontological. Yes. Absolutely. That's what the church fathers talk about. Yep. That's totally true. Uh, here's a problem in English. That is that the word of t- atonement as an English word has shifted. Hmm. It's come to virtually mean appeasement and, 
N.T. Wright says that if your idea of the cross is it's wrath appeasement of an angry deity, you've paganized the gospel. Mm. But inherent in atonement is a bit of that appeasement thing. But originally, the word meant nothing but reconciliation. So the reconciliation can be, let's say, I'm reconciled to God. He didn't need to be reconciled. I did. I was hiding like Adam and Eve. Yes. And now I'm reconciled. I come back like the prodigal son. I come back to the father's house. I'm reconciled to his house. I'm reconciled to my accusing conscience. Because mm. what sin doesn't punish, your conscience will. Amen. Yes. You know? Yes. And uh, I'm reconciled to myself then. I'm reconciled to the, the part of my heart that's been locked away. And I, it's allowed to have feelings again. I'm reconciled to my family, my community. That mm. was atonement. Yes. But it became this weird propitiation of, you know, throw the virgin in the volcano thing that has nothing to yes. do with the New Testament. Yes. <laughs> Well, amen. This has been great, Brad. It's been so good to have you. Yes. Thank you for sharing with us uh, some of your journey. Um, what, would you, what would you say, just as a final word, um, you know, if, if some of our listeners are, are hearing this and maybe they're feeling that intuitive tug towards a merciful uh, God who is love, and, and we see that love in Jesus on the cross, but they still have, you know, some of these concerns, these worries about, you know, am I really being faithful can I really do this? What are the implications? Like, do you have a word of encouragement that you could just proclaim over people who are worried? No, it's pretty hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we'll see you next time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, um, because I do, I, I just think if, if we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, and I li- like I actually mean it. I don't mean that as an abstraction. That was another problem with Enlightenment evangelicalism is we would take words from Scripture like "fix your eyes on Jesus," or and we would make that like, well, stay, stay, you know, attentive to some truth you believe. No, no, it's like no. When you close your eyes, like look at them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so now I get, you know, this is the ancient, also ancient practice of contemplative prayer, going back yes. to King David when he says, um, I, I set the Lord always before me. Mm-hmm. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Mm-hmm. And then Paul picks up on that in Acts 2, and he, he, re- he tweaks it, and he says, I saw the Lord always before me. And so you get these invitations to fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's and John reads, hears that, and he says, "So I looked, and there was a door, and it's standing open." And here's, yes. and he describes. So I, it's odd. It's an odd twist in our conversation because what I'm what I'm saying is um, to get past this stuff is going to involve moving beyond objective doctrinal systems to try to be safe and faithful. You've got, you've got to cultivate a contemplative life. And in that contemplative context, you begin to encounter the living God. Um, I can say that God is wrathful because I've met him. And I'm wondering about those who've moved, even progressives who've moved on from Jesus. And they're like, have you not met him? Or those who think he's wrathful, have you not met him? Because um, I'm not super spiritual, but I... Any four-year-old can have a contemplative 
experience of the living God, and they will mm. tell you exactly what he's like. And I'm telling you, it's exactly like Jesus. Mm. So that's that's a weird encouragement, but I would <laughs> I would pick up on it. that and just start, and I'll give a, a precise, um, here's an exercise. In prayer, do what David did in Psalm 23. Ask God to give you a picture of a safe place for you. For him, it was green pastures and quiet waters. This is Ignatian stuff. Um, and then and then step into that picture in prayer, uh, whatever your safe place would be. And then find God there the same way he found the good shepherd. How does God come to you there? What does he show you? What does he say to you? And begin to engage in dialogue in your prayer. Hmm. And uh, for those who are like, oh, I've never heard of this before. I'm like, of course you have. I come to the garden of alone while the dew is still on the roses. <laughs> right. The voice I hear falling on my ear, the son of God discloses and he walks with me and talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And, and I mean, we've been singing it in the hymns for years and years. It's like, well, stop singing about it and just mm. do it for a moment, you know? Yeah. So, Put down um, the organ. There right? it is. Yeah. No, I, Thanks, I, Fred. Yeah. Thank you. I really love that advice. It, I mean, one of our axioms is that God is always present and at work. And, yes. you know, sometimes, sometimes that can be almost a blithe, like, oh, I know, I know, God's always present and at work. But what you're talking about is, no, there is a personal God who is present, who is at yeah. work, who can be observed, who can be seen, who can be uh, encountered. Yeah, but not just yeah. in your discursive intellect. In, you have to engage your f- imagination. You have yeah. to yeah. engage at, your full at body. the noose, the, the core of you. I got to tell you this one story. Yeah, let's it, hear it. it. Just happened yesterday. It's fresh. It's brief. I met. I met a. <laughs> I met with a woman who she calls herself um, the thrifty yogini. <laughs> she nice. Loves, she loves good thrift sale deals, but she's really into yoga and meditation. <laughs> but and uh, so I I said I I, I have an idea for you and and um like she usually goes through a Buddhist meditation with a you know. A, audio track and i said why don't you try you using you know i said jesus revealed one of god's names is abba in fact it was jesus favorite name for god in next time you you meditate um um try that as a mantra hmm. just just say abba to the god that jesus revealed yeah. and uh she did and she got back to me and she said it was unbelievable I could, is this normal? I felt him in me. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, and then I could just go off on John, the gospel of John. It's like, yeah, he's yeah. in you and you're in him and you were in touch with Abba, the Abba Jesus revealed Jesus. It was awesome. That's amazing. Oh. Peace. And I'm like, well, that blows my theology away too. Right. right. All right. So go. people put away your bridge illustrations, your chick <laughs> tracks, and your four spiritual laws, and just <laughs> tell people to mystically encounter the risen Jesus during their Buddhist yoga meditation. There yes. it is. That's the new... <laughs> That's the new model. Yes, I'm sure we'll be in trouble now. But <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably yes. we'll get emails. She loves Jesus now, by the way. Oh, That's fantastic. Man. That's beautiful. Oh. Well, uh, again, it has been awesome to have you on, Brad. I would love to do this again sometime. Um, I want to leave. I want to leave all of us. This this came to mind as we were uh, as we were talking today, and I looked it up. I want to leave all of us with this uh, blessing from Dallas Willard uh, that he would oftentimes pray over people. My prayer for each of you that you would have a rich life of joy and power, abundant in supernatural results, 
with a constant, clear vision of never-ending life in God's world before you and the everlasting significance of your work day by day, a radiant life and death. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.